Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to Leading Better and Growing Faster with Joe and TJ. I'm Joe. And I'm TJ. And we are The Schoolhouse 302. Where you can find blog posts, podcasts with expert guests, curated book recommendations, and our genius thoughts. Always on a topic that is proven to help you lead better and grow faster. If you want to support the show, all you have to do is hit us with a like, a share, a follow, or a comment. On our site or on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you access our material. Again, thanks for listening and for leading better and growing faster with us. Here we go with another great episode. Hello, everyone. Here we are with our guest, Curtis Murphy. Thank you for being on the show, Curtis. We are thrilled to have you. Fantastic. Glad to be here. Excellent. We know that management is challenging. There's answers, though, to management, and there's also best practices that managers and leaders can utilize, which is why we're thrilled to have you on the show. TJ, why don't you tell our audience a little bit more about Curtis? Thanks, Joe. Curtis Murphy has spent 32 years as a software engineer, 20 of those years in games and gaming, and 12 years building educational games. He spent three summers hosting the NSF's Edu Gaming Workshop and six years as a professor of game design at Laguna College of Art and Design for their Game Design MFA program. He has a few dozen minor publications and chapters. He's an award-winning speaker, author, and game designer. He's been on 21 episodes of the podcast Game Design Zen, and he's currently the VP of Engineering at Mobile Game Studio. He is the recent author. One of the reasons why we're excited to have him on this show is of a book called What Makes Great Managers Great, How to Raise Engagement, Give Feedback. You know, that's one of our favorite topics and answer the questions no one is asking. So Curtis, we want to get started diving into this conversation about managers, what makes some managers great and others not so great. You've done extensive research and have tons of management experience. Why'd you write the book? Why this book? Why now? What do you want people to get from it? I love this question so much. I've listened to a number of your podcasts and I love it when you ask this. I love hearing people's questions. I want to answer it. And before I do, I actually want to flip it around and ask you a question. You know, sometimes in your podcast, you talk about having outsiders come in. Well, I'm an outsider. I'm not an educator by trade. I'm not a school administrator. You know, I'm coming in as a practitioner and a leader in, in a gaming studio. So I have very different perspectives. So, you know, what are you hoping for me to bring to this? How can I help your listeners and yourselves and you know, to advance what they're doing and continue to grow. Well, first, I have to say that I think it's awesome that you've already flipped the show around and asked us a question, leave it to a game design guy to start gaming around with the leading better and growing faster show with Joe and TJ, but I appreciate it. And I'll answer it. I think a lot of times in our worlds, we become isolated, we get steeped in the literature about educational leadership, for example, we might actually just read books about teaching and learning as as leaders in education. And I think there's some serious crossover. What Joe and I have found, not just like outsider, is military, 
business, you know, vice presidents, entrepreneurs. And what our show is intended to do is kind of break those barriers. Yes, we do also interview educational leaders, but we like to sprinkle in management gurus, people who know something specific about trust. We've had Stephen M. R. Covey on the show. Wonderful. Um, to talk about that. I have to go find so, that one. Yeah. And so it's just, you know, perspective seeking, I think, is the real answer and helping educational leaders break outside of their box. I hope that gets us started. But yeah, that's yeah. that's why we do it. That's why you're here. And we're it. not just interviewing somebody that educational leaders have heard from a dozen times. Yeah, I love that. I love that cross, you know, collaboration and the different disciplines. I do have some of my career was focused in education and building educational games. And it's not my core focus. So listening to like your podcast, I'm like, wow, they're thinking about problems that I've like, wow, you have to deal with student bodies and teachers and superintendents and maybe in voting and elect. There's just so many different things that are, sound really hard and complicated to me. Okay. So why did I write this book? So what makes great managers? Obviously I'm passionate about it. I spent a lot of time on this, like what made me rate it and be very respectful and very blunt. I'm going to just say out loud what I'm thinking. And that is most managers are doing it wrong. Okay, so I'm just going to state that really boldly. That's going to include some of the people in your audience. It may even include us, right? And I say that fully respectfully because I was doing it wrong, right? So I didn't start out as an amazing manager as none of us do. No, in fact, what happened is I was just minding my business, being a strong performer, you know, being a good coder, a good engineer. And about four years in my career, my boss quit. So he was a great boss. I really liked him. I looked up to him and respected him. He had tons of experience, all things that I didn't have. So I go in and the talking to the CEO, what are we going to do? What happens next? Well, who's going to be my boss? And the CEO of this company says, well, I'm going to be your boss. Congratulations, Curtis. You're now the director of product development. Uh, sure. <laughs> so, I mean, on the one hand, you're kind of a little bit excited. And on the other, you've just run smack into the Peter principle, right? I got promoted to my level of incompetence. I felt like an imposter. Every day I'm coming in, I'm supposed to be hiring and firing and doing all these different things. And I tried my best. And every time I would go to a customer site and the CEO, because that's my job now, he'd take me out to a customer site and, he said, and he'd introduce me. This is Curtis, my director of product development. I would cringe inside because I knew that I didn't know what I was doing. So I did that for a few years and I left that job and I went, oh, I'm going to go get another job being an engineer. Well, here's what the reality was. Well, now I had all this experience. They only want to hire you. And guess what? I'm a manager all over again. So it just starts over. So at that point in my career, I realized, oh, this is a thing. Like, you know, air quotes, thing. I got to figure out how to be a manager. It's not enough to just do my craft. So if you're a teacher and you're thinking, oh, I got to just be a teacher. Well, once you start managing and looking at stuff, no, that's a thing in itself. You didn't teach it to you in school. There's so much out there. It's confusing. Well, I did exactly what you were probably did. I read books. I read blogs. I listened to your podcast at the time, whatever was the equivalent, right? I started going to conferences and training sessions and workshops. And I learned and I practiced and I did all this stuff. I would say stuff that we like to be uncomfortable with. Like, I was kind of proud of myself. Look how hard I'm working to read all these books. I'm so great. And the reality was I wasn't. I still wasn't great. In fact, I would go and say I was bad. And maybe I'm a slow learner. Maybe I didn't learn the right things. Maybe it's hard. I don't know. For me, it took some unique experiences in my life to help me figure this out. So I raised a make-a-wish child. I got tapped to be a soccer coach where I learned about 5 to 1 and <laughs> running kids around, how to praise them. I ran my own little mini company for a little while. I presented a lot. I wrote a lot of chapters and did a lot of speaking. And still, even with all that, it wasn't until I had 
had a crazy experience. Now this I know is unique. So I'm in the car, we're going to lunch, this new CEO, different company, future, right? 18 years in my career, whatever it is. And the CEO says, hey, um, what do you think about healthcare? I'm like, well, I'm a game designer. I build, I, what? <laughs> and what he was trying to ask me is, hey, do you want to go over to Eastern Virginia Medical School and be a research fellow? Yeah, absolutely. I don't even know what that means. Like, I had to Google, what is a research fellow? I had to look that up and figure out what that means. Okay. So it turns out that EVMS is one of the foremost experts in the world at this goofy thing that you're like, what the heck is this? Called standardized patients, simulated patients. And I don't mean it's goofy. I just mean from our perspective, if you haven't done it, you're like, what? They take normal everyday people, they teach them how to communicate. And then those people are responsible for training doctors, surgeons, physicians, assistants, nurses, all the healthcare staff that you go in to see. And we were just talking about you having a surgery, right? That you want them to know how to communicate and be effective. This is where I learned things like communication is responsible for almost 100,000 deaths in the United States. States. And what I mean is bad communication, right? Like wait, hundred. Yeah. One in every 25 deaths in the United States is a result of a medical error. This is proven. It's, they keep fighting it to kind of try to solve it and they're still struggling. And there's been a lot of research. So this really opened my eyes when I was like, oh my gosh, I'm the bad manager that all these things are talking about. That's me. So I had to relearn everything and learned about rules of improv and open-ended questions and psychological safety and may, why people are afraid to communicate at all and how to for, posture high-performing teams and slowing down to speed up all these different kinds of things. That's when I really learned. Now that was 10 years ago. A few years after that, I went to apply for a new job, my current job. The VP who's hiring me, he's like, hey, I just want to let you know, there's some unique challenges with this job. It's like communication, there's a lot of teams, it's subtle, there's some nuances. It's, you know, I just need you to know that it's not just engineering, it's tricky. I said, oh, well, I'm uniquely qualified for this. <laughs> I just went to hear and I explained all of that I just went through with you that I had to unlearn and relearn. And so that's what I did. And I've spent the last eight years at this job basically mastering and applying and putting these things into effect. And now I'm proud to say I've grown from like in my group from like five people to like 40. I got artists, I got engineers, I got QA staff. They're very diverse and they are the highest performing, most engaged, most collaborative and openly communicating group that I have ever seen, right? I don't get all the credit for that. I have done my best to try to do that. So along the way, I've been teaching and sharing and knowledge. And I get, <laughs> I get in this state where I'm like, I keep repeating myself and teaching people the same things over and over. So no, let me write it all down, master it and put it in a book. And that's what I did. Curtis, that is one heck of a story. And I think a lot of people can resonate with being thrown into the fire, doing your best to swim as a manager, you know, just survive as a manager, let alone be effective. One thing that I'm really, you know, going on and on in my own head about as you spoke that I would love for you to dive in faster because you had mentioned you've read the books, you're listening to podcasts, but it really wasn't until this fellowship that you started learning very specific skills. Like I think even knowing, you know, those stages, like you knew that you became incompetent. You knew what you didn't know. So like all those stages that we identify until eventually being, you know, learned and a master of something. But I am very curious to know what was the difference? Why did the fellowship, you know, really teach you what you needed to know? And what was missing from those other experiences? Because I think that's unique, but I, everybody does those other experiences. People read yeah. 
They want to get better. I would love yeah. to find out something granular, like maybe you would change from how you approached it in the beginning or what was just so great about this fellowship. Yeah, there's tons of things I would change. And, you know, and I do write about that and I'm sure we'll talk about it. W what I would share for me is that I began to realize that many of the things I had learned and been, you know, trying to master turned out to just be fundamentally wrong. And you're like, well, wait, what do you mean? So on your show, you talk a lot about feedback and I've attended lots of, you know, conferences about feedback and different workshops about feedback. And it's like, we always talk about how to give feedback and the, you know, the, the poop sandwich, you know, the good, the bad, the good. I'm going to just say something really bold. And I don't know that this will apply to everybody and everybody's situation. My experience and my learning is the whole idea of quote, constructive criticism is flawed, period. Like, I'm just going to throw that out there. And when I figured that out and realized, oh, why am I giving constructive criticism to my employees at all? Why am I even going into a meeting and sitting down saying, I have to criticize them at all and figure out the 12 ways why they're doing their job wrong and I should fix it. Once I stopped thinking that way and instead started thinking about my employees as strong performers, that they're good at their job and they're coming to work every day trying to be better and do good work and educate or run this school or be an administrator or whatever it is that they're doing, they didn't come to work today to suck. They don't need me to come in and tell them, here's some constructive criticism for you. I don't like the way you introduced this meeting. And I'm like, what am I doing? And once I learned how to achieve my results that I wanted to achieve with other techniques, I started throwing all that stuff away. So I don't give constructive criticism at all. I don't ever use the word control. I don't even like the word delegation, right? The whole idea of somebody's meeting expectations, the whole idea of like yearly feedback sessions, OKRs, KPIs, measuring results, all that stuff. I don't like any of it. So it's radical. <laughs> I know many of your listeners will be like, wait, how do I do my job if you throw all that stuff away? <laughs> well, that's why I wrote the book. I'm sweating. <laughs> guide you along in terms of like, wow, oh, wait, what did you realize? I realized everything I was doing was wrong. I mean, that fits not that we haven't written about KPIs and constructive feedback in our <laughs> own work, Curtis, but that fits with our notion and something that we often talk about on the show is that a lot of leadership is actually counterintuitive. What we yeah. think we should do, we should sometimes do the opposite of yeah. that thing. And we can talk about that too and dive a little bit more into it. But looking at your faces and they can't see and I'm watching their reactions. I know it's bold. I know it's crazy. Maybe it's radical. These are the things I learned, right? And I tried to work through them and tried to figure out, well, what do I do instead? And sorry to interrupt you. I apologize. Well, no, I think you're going right where, where I was thinking is what yeah. do you do instead? If you're talking to managers out there and you say, hey, I'm not going to tell you to give constructive feedback and I'm not going to tell you to, to build out the KPIs, but I am going to tell you to do what is that this. thing that yeah. you want them to do instead? Yeah. So I think, and you know, Joe and I were talking before, you know, I think the, the number one thing to start with is the premise that there's confusion everywhere, right? So we can talk more about that in just a second. For now, just sort of start with the premise that there's confusion. So if there's confusion everywhere, then at the end of the day, you have individuals that are confused, you have teams that are confused, you have, you know, new initiatives and people are confused about that. So you assume that there's confusion everywhere. And then if that's a premise, then my job becomes, well, how do I remove confusion? And so I start thinking of ways to like, well, okay, what do I do to remove confusion, right? Confusion to me has been the number one, like instigator source cause of low performance, both as an individual or as a team, right? We think as managers and leaders, like, oh, I was so clear. I said it five times. I sent emails, I sent memos, and I still have employees come into my office 
I don't understand. I was like, wow, in my head, I'm like, how could they possibly not understand? And they don't understand, right? So that's on me, right? I wasn't clear. So the first thing that I do, the very, very first thing that I do on the first day that employees hired with every new employee, every time they get a promotion, every time they shift a team, every time there's a major change, and then like two times a year, at least once a year, is I clarify expectations. So I write about that. I have this whole activity you can do. There's four steps. You brainstorm, you organize, you shrink, and then you sacrifice, right? It's pretty simple to do. It takes about an hour with most employees. I just did it this morning with another employee. They're updating their things. The technique is to clarify expectations. What does that mean? It means I have an employee and I sat down a year ago with them, right? How often do you sit down with your employees and clarify expectations? Occasionally, right? So I sat down with them and said, this is what you're doing. Okay, we agree. And we have a whole process for that. And like, okay, this is your job. When you come to work tomorrow, your job is to whatever it is, right? Okay, yeah, that's your job. That's my job. It's not the job description that was on the website when they got hired because no, you have education educators, this person is teaching a second grade class and that person's running a special ed program. And that person is on the side also running the debate team or the drama club or, or their administrator. And so everybody's expectation is different. It's not just because it's in a job description somewhere. No, what do I expect you? What do you expect of you? What do your teammates expect of you? What are your parents and students expect of you? And we make that really simple. So we clarify it. So when they come to work every day, they are focused on this is what's expected of me. And that's like the number one thing that a leader can do, a manager can do is to clarify those expectations because we think we're being clear and I have learned we're not. We just think we are. And they nod and they go, okay, sure. And then we ask them to repeat it back. And they're like, well, not exactly. They're not clear. So that's what I start with. I have a whole bunch of other techniques. That's like the number one thing I recommend that you can just do today. It doesn't take very long. It's very straightforward. And you don't even have to change HR policies and programs and that kind of stuff. It's just you and your employee sitting down and clarifying, look, let's talk about what it is that we're expecting out of you, right? And then that solves a lot of these other things because it's in their expectations. Like, well, you said that you expect you, right? This is the employee to do whatever, provide technical leadership for the second grade educational department. You said that's what you expect. So let's talk about it. And Curtis, I did share that with you and you and I were talking offline a little bit. You know, that's one that resonated with me quite a bit. I know you don't mean it as a negative. As you explain it, it's not a negative. I think it's actually a positive. You're giving people almost the benefit of the doubt in the sense that they don't know. So quit having the expectations that they know. The expectations lie with them to be able to perform, not right. necessarily know exactly what needs to get done. And I like that kind of dichotomous thought around it. With that, though, you also write quite a bit about safety. Mm -hmm and making people feel safe. And mm -hmm. could we go down that road a little bit? Because I also think that's very important with this, with the strategies you're talking about. You write in a ton of like little stories in your book. I think that's excellent. The first book, TJ and I wrote, Candid and Compassionate Feedback, you know, had stories. I think people gravitate to that. But you specifically write about make it safe. You talk about how managers are in a position of authority and the responsibility really falls on them to make it right to create that right environment. Can you talk a little bit about that? And that way, I also see that directly connecting to assuming that they don't know, assuming confusion, because you've built this environment where you can have that open dialogue. You can have some of those candid conversations and it's not all built around some other artificial constructs. Yeah, this is this is one of those things that was eye-opening for me. It wasn't until I spent that year at a medical school and I just learned, you know, it was, it was almost hard for me to fathom, right? So 
as a non-healthcare provider, which I assume many of your you know listeners are not in healthcare doing surgeries, right? They're educators. So I'm sitting here and thinking, why would a nurse or a surgical assistant or a physical assistant or a therapist, why would they not speak up? And then a patient dies. Like, it's almost hard to fathom. Like, do you know that person was allergic to that medicine? Why didn't you say something? And then they die. And you're like, what the heck is going on? Like, in my brain, I just almost couldn't even comprehend. And then you look at the numbers. It's like 100,000 people. And 70% of that is just from straight up communication, not even like medical errors, just straight up communication. So 70,000 people a year. That's a lot of people affected by lots of professionals, which means it's just systemic, right? So that helped me to learn that even though I thought I was a great boss, I thought I was a great manager, and I thought I was doing all this stuff, what I realized is actually I'm still the most threatening thing in most people's lives, right? At the end of the day, if I come in and I'm having a bad day and I'm cranky and I'm overworked or I'm stressed and I'm whatever I do affects my individual employee way more than it affects me. And they're already afraid of me. Why? Because I control their review and their end of year cycle and the potential promotions and the potential raises. I could fire them. I could demote them. I could shift them to a new department. I have real control over this idea of safety, right? And it's easy to sort of say the words, oh, it's safe. It's okay. You can talk to me. You can do this. And the reality is, is not enough. It's it's just words. It's not enough. It's in all the actions that we do every day. It's in all the little things that we ask why questions. Like, well, every time you ask a why question, you just reduce safety, right? Every time you're checking your phone when you're in a meeting, you just reduce psychological safety. Every time you have barriers in your conversation, you're not actively listening, you're not, you've just reduced psychological safety because they don't trust you, they don't believe you. All these things reduce it. And so then I began learning, well, what does it do it? You know, what does increase it? So then that led to all of the different techniques. Curtis, I want to switch gears a little bit in a yeah. minute to some leadership questions that our audience loves to get answers from. But before I do, I just want to kind of understand underscore this topic of psychological safety for people who have far more than 40 people on staff yeah. and who are removed from being able to eliminate the why question or being too far removed from necessarily clarifying expectations for an individual's contribution every single day or every single week or that type of thing. What do you say to leaders who are managing larger organizations and or don't spend a ton of time with their employees. And I'm asking that because a lot of our listeners are school leaders and mm -hmm. I know what they're thinking, which is my teachers are all isolated in a classroom all day. I get to see them a few times a week in walkthroughs and, and I do provide feedback, but how can I do that as a manager? And our management people who are listening might be thinking, yeah, but I have 2,000 employees or 5,000 employees. What do you say to those folks? And wow. <laughs> are you saying that all those people directly report to that end? Wow. No. No, okay. I'm talking about layers of an organization. Yeah, layers. Right? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. a superintendent. Joe's a superintendent, right? He's yeah. got four schools. He's not able to meet with employees. But how do we help to still get to this psychological safety and this clarifying expectations? I love the part about clarifying expectations. One of yeah, you mentioned Covey before. It's one of his high trust behaviors. Yes. yes. But what yes. do you say to people who are just not in touch? all the time with their reports and reports below them. Yeah, so so th 
then you're at a level of management that's actually sort of above me, right? In concept, right? You're managing multiple schools and districts. And so these techniques that I'm sharing specifically are related to management. So if we're a manager, you have direct reports. So let's say, even if you're a superintendent, you have direct reports, I'm assuming that individuals, so maybe it's six people, maybe it's 10 people, maybe you have a really big organization and 20 people report to you. You don't have 2000 people reporting to you. Any organization that's set up that you're the direct manager of 2000 people, I suspect you got other problems and you don't need to listen to Curtis. You need to go solve some other problems, right? <laughs> so no, the, the techniques I'm talking about are for individual direct reports. Some of them will apply directly. Psychological safety is, I know you talk about it. I've heard you guys talk about it. You, you know, we're all trying to just be better at that. And those techniques are pretty well defined. You know, be present, active listening, be vulnerable, admit fallibility, you know, state explicitly which things you want them to talk about. You know, I, I give an example of, um, you know, a stop activity that the, the surgeons do that I learned about. And basically before every surgery, the, the gold standard is you're supposed to stop everything and you're supposed to say something like this. I was in a surgery, I recorded a few and it goes something like this. Okay, we got a complex thing. This is what we're doing today. Here's the things. Look, we're going to make mistakes. Okay, mistakes are going to happen today. There's going to be a little mistake. Something's going to happen. So the real mistake is if you see something and you don't shout and speak up and let everybody know right then. Okay, that's the only mistake that matters. All the rest of it is just us doing our jobs, being best, and we make corrections along the way. Okay, so now what I want everyone to do is just say their name and their role, not their rank. All right, go around the room. Okay, that's an example of how they introduce the surgery. So that's a specific technique that they would do to increase psychological safety. Why? Because you want to get every person in the room speaking prior to doing the surgery. What's that do? It breaks the ice. And they don't want them to say their title. Oh, I'm the surgeon of the, you know, such and so unit. Why? Because that threatens everybody else, right? Joe and, and TJ, you guys introduce yourself. You're like, oh, I'm superintendent. Man, I'm intimidated. <laughs> I was like, whoa, okay. I don't know that I should speak up and say something. We don't want that. We want to remove all those barriers. We want to make it safe. And we use those techniques and we, you know, make it safe to make mistakes, admit vulnerability, right? Brittany Brown, right? All these things you guys have probably talked about all those things as well. So yeah, hopefully it's helpful. No, I think it's definitely helpful. And I think what I'm noting here and taking notes on for the show notes is that when we do that, we also hope that that trickles down to the next layer of management, yeah. that we yeah. create that space for the people who we lead so that they can create that space for the people who they lead, so on and so forth. And that's yeah. what we do in larger organizations. And the, the safety starts with the top, so to speak, but there's a trickle down effect. And you know, and you just made me think, TJ, though, as we go through those layers, name it. Like you just did, Kurt, name why you just did that. I think at least yeah. in the first go round, so people realize, then TJ, to your point specifically, it's not where we're just assuming that our leaders would then do that for their people. It's it's an expectation. We're doing yeah. for this reason, you do the same thing. We expect you to mirror that. Yeah, I love that. That's a that's beautiful leadership right there, right? You you embody it, you demonstrate it, you show it, you reinforce it. And then later, and we can talk about this in a bit, you praise it when other people do it, right? You call it out like, hey, I really appreciated the way you stopped the meeting or you did this thing or you created a psychological safe environment by doing X, Y, Z. Then you praise that behavior. And then they're like, oh, okay, well, my boss appreciates that. Oh, I didn't even know I was doing that. Oh, okay, I should do it again. Yeah, 100%. You mentioned Brene Brown. It reminds me a lot of Amy Edmondson's work too, mm -hmm. in terms of creating those environments. What a cool strategy. It's definitely foreign to education. So back to your question <laughs> at the beginning, we introduce ourselves based on our titles and, the, right. and not our roles. And I think some educators are probably
probably thinking in their head, I don't even really know how I could describe my role if somebody <laughs> asked me. You know, that's the comfort zone that we want people to come out of to learn to lead better and grow faster is like, how yeah. do you describe your role and what contributions do you make to your organization on a regular basis? That's important too, to both be able to know and to be able to describe. I agree with that. It's tricky. Yeah, just for instance, me. Oh, okay. I'm a VP of engineering. Right away, I've just decreased psychological safety, right? Like, you know, you got junior staff across all kinds of disciplines. Right away, they're afraid of me. Like, oh, that sounds scary. So I don't even say that when I introduce myself. You know, it's just like, oh, hey, how you doing? I, I work with the engineers in the in the QA and art for this group. And they don't even know. All these little things do matter. Yeah. It's interesting because that's what I do with kids, but I don't do that with adults. Like if a kid asks <laughs> me what the kid says, what do you do? I'm like, I work with the principals. Right. You know, so yeah, I like it. Joe, let's dive into our one thing leadership section here. And it's not designed for you to just select one, but we do like to narrow down for our listeners if we can get a nugget or a place for them to go. And we start with a person or a group, one person or a group who you follow for either knowledge or inspiration and where can we find them? Yeah, I've listened to several and nobody ever gives you one. I'm not going to give you one either. I'm going to give you three. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, at this stage in my journey, I'm looking for inspiration typically. So, you know, I, I like the a book called The Almanac of Raval Navikant. It's free. You can just Google it. It's just a deep thinker. I just really enjoyed that. I found it inspirational. I do listen to the All In podcast a lot. It's just my pulse on tech and AI. And when I'm watching YouTube, I like Veritasium. So I just feel like the educational content, it's new, it's interesting, it's science-y, it scratches my nerd itch. So, And then above all, my wife, which... Unfortunately, you can't have her. So <laughs> I'm not sure we've heard any of those three before. Oh, awesome. Well, fantastic. Great. Yeah. 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 I mean, they're all they're all good and, and they're all free. So no cost. Yeah, that's excellent. That's yeah. excellent. On this other lane of, you know, we obviously believe in reading. We believe in listening to podcasts and, mm -hmm. and trying to learn and grow each day. I mean, that's near and dear to our heart as educators. It's who we are and what we believe. Curtis, is there one thing that you try to do on a regular basis that makes a difference in your day in life? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do love this question as well. You know, I'm a nerd by trade, which means I grew up as an engineer, which I was that annoying kid that, you're like, well, technically the way that that works is blah, 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 right? And then I became an engineer. So now you're probably glad to have engineers who do that. Most people don't appreciate that when you're interacting with them. There's the nerds that you're kind of like, um, please just go away, go write some code or something. So yeah, so along the way, I learned some other techniques and I've heard you talk about this before. And so the thing that I recommend doing on a regular basis is the rules of improv, okay? So there's three that I'll highlight. I know you've talked about improvisation and, and stuff in the past and it starts with accepting offers. So for those who are listening, pay attention to a way that Joe and TJ and I are interacting acting today, we accept everything. Everything that's being said is accepted in some way, whether accepting the person, the acknowledgement, the thought, the journey, the difficulty, the vulnerability, we're accepting that as an offer, right? And so it creates this really fluid, dynamic conversation. So then the second rule is yes and. So the yes is the part of accepting. And then and is, well, we want to contribute back to it. Remember me as an engineer, I had to remove the word but from my vocabulary. So I try to never, ever use the word but or however, or accept, period. So good luck with that. <laughs> it's taken me a lot of years. I still don't nail it. I'm pretty good at it. So that's the yes and. The second rule and the third rule is kind of strange. It will feel weird. And that is our goal is to make the partner look good, right? So as I'm talking here in this, and I'm, I'm trying to make Joe and TJ look good, they're trying to make me look good. Why? Because it furthers the conversation. It continues things. And when we do that, that helps us to find out what people aren't telling us. And there's lots of things that our employees and our teammates aren't telling us they're afraid 
great. So if I use those rules of improv, accept offer, yes, and make my partner look good, that's just something I try to do every day. By the way, it is the best thing I ever did for my marriage. Yeah, no, those three rules are awesome. We talk, you are right. We talk about the rules of improv. We even have a chapter in one of our books about that as a thinking tool yeah. in meetings and other spaces to help people to open up and think differently about concepts and about problems and specifically the yes and and if you watch improv you'll see those yeah. rules in place it's so them. awesome once you know the rules to watch guys and gals use those on the stage or on tv for example so very cool what's one thing that you want to try to be able to do that you don't already guess i don't know that this is helpful for your group i will tell you for me i struggle to just be calm and be in the moment and be mindful. And I know probably a lot of your listeners are very strong performers. They're leaders. They're running groups. I know for me, it's really hard not to always just have this sense of urgency. If I don't write this book or I don't publish that game or I don't do this side project or I don't get this thing done, it's, I'm running out of time. I got to go, go, go. It's really difficult for me to just calm my mind. So that's one thing I wish I knew how to do. I don't have any tips for you because I'm not really good at it. <laughs> so... I, I feel you, Curtis. I'll tell you what, the most one of the most stressful things I've ever done is read Eckhart Tolle's Power of Now. I was uh -huh. like, I love what he wrote and thought there's no chance I can do <laughs> what he's saying. Like, There's no chance. Like one, I'm wired hyper. And yeah. I love the intensity of things. Not, not necessarily a bad intensity, just the intensity of things. Yeah. And it's one reason why I loved being a principal of a 1650 student school. There's so much going on all the time. Kids give me energy. But like you're saying, to be mindful to be present, to be calm. That is something that you just said and hit me pretty hard. I agree with it. It's, it's hard, but I see the benefits. I heard about it. When people told me about Tolly's work and the power of now and things like that, I, I really gravitated towards it, but I, I it stressed me out. I was like, I, I don't really <laughs> think I can do this. Like gaze out your window for moments of time and- right. <laughs> Through the outside light. I'm like, no, I got email. It's hard. It's real hard. Yeah. Curtis, you know, being a manager, being a leader, you had mentioned earlier about growing your division from five to 40. Congrats on that. That means you're doing things right. You're in a yeah. very unique industry. We didn't really talk about that much at all, but being a game designer, my kids are going to be thrilled when I go home and tell them <laughs> I had the opportunity to be with you today. You know, what's one thing that continues to support your growth? You know, now now that you feel, you know, I, I put it out on a book, I feel good, but what continues to support your growth as well as a manager? But you've also mentioned a lot of personal things here as well. So this could be leadership or even as on a personal level. I'm going to share the one thing that made the most difference for me and that I still work on every day that I just constantly focus on. And that's a very, very specific technique. And I do write about this a lot and how I got there and why I got in this journey. And I failed a lot on the way. It's very simple. Praise the behaviors you want repeated. The end. Every single day, every Every time there's an interaction, I'm constantly thinking about, okay, well, how can I praise, you know, Joe? How can I praise TJ? How can I in praise specifically not the performance, not how many downloads they've got, not how many successes they've had, not how many books they've published. No, how can I praise the behavior that I want them to repeat, right? And then I think about that. And in every interaction with people in my department, people outside of my department, people in different, you know, disciplines entirely across the company and completely different areas of the business, I am thinking of, oh, well, I want to give them feedback. And my feedback is going to be praise. Hey, hey, I really appreciate it. Not 
oh, you did a great job. No, I really appreciated that, you know, you responded so quickly to this request. Like we were blocked on this and and I know you were busy and I appreciated that you took the time to get to this right away. That helped me do this, this, and this. And it's been, that was really awesome. So thank you. Like, what am I praising? I'm praising them responding really quickly to my request. And I do this all the time. And I think about it all the time. And once I get really good at that, now I can just do it anytime to any employee, to anybody, because I've thought a lot about, well, what behaviors do I want them to repeat? What am I doing? What is the culture of my group? What is those things? It's going to be different for you, different for, you know, at the leadership levels, the elementary school, mid school, high school, you know, post, these are all going to be different. So you have to decide what you praise, right? What the behaviors you want. That would be the one thing I would like totally, if you forget everything else in this podcast, start praising the behaviors you want repeated. That would be something I'd recommend. And we're totally on board with that. We've done a ton of research on that area. In particular, Curtis, our book, Candid Compassion and Feedback is about that. And Mm -hmm. the greatest thing about what you just said is it's it's based in science, neuroscience, behavioral psychology. If we praise the behaviors that we want people to repeat, they will repeat them. They will, right? And it's based on like the growth mindset. It's based on the way, right? The laws of learning. Like it's very, I totally 100% agree. It's completely based on science and it's it's not the way we're taught we're taught to say oh you're a natural you're gifted you're a great employee you did a good job and like well how do I repeat that? It's so true. And it's also why 70 plus percent, I read a statistic recently that said 80 plus percent of people say that their work is not celebrated or praised, mm. but yet 70 plus percent of managers say that they do it. <laughs> yeah. and it it's not <laughs> that we're not that. trying to do it. Yeah. Right. It's not that we're not trying to do it. It's that we don't yeah. do it well. And yeah. I think the behavior part of what you're saying will help leaders because you're doing a great job job. I want to thank you for your work today, but there's so much nuance in what we do from a day to day that what workers do in every field from a day to day that we're not specific about the behaviors. They don't know what to repeat. So I'm with you. If you're listening, if you've made it this far into the podcast, take that to the bank. You got to praise the behaviors and you got to do it often. Yeah, I totally, it's rock solid. It's, this is proven. It's like, I could not agree more. It's definitely going to change your team, your leadership, your style. I'll admit you're going to feel really awkward. Like if you haven't done this, if you try to say like, just go through this exercise, you have your partner, your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, whatever. And you say, you look gorgeous. No, that's not praising behavior. Tell somebody they look gorgeous by praising their behavior. When you figure that out, you're on your way to figuring out this technique. And maybe your marriage. And maybe your marriage. (laughs) Curtis, you started us off with this. So it's a great place to end, but you might also just point back to what you're saying before. It's our final question. What's the one thing that you used to think that you don't think anymore? Yeah, I like this. This one I thought about a lot. So there's something very specifically that that I had to pivot. So as I was going along my journey, you remember I said I was patting myself on the back. I was like, oh, I'm doing good. I'm reading all these books. I'm so awesome. Look at me. I'm trying to empower my employees. So it was this. I spent a lot of time saying like, oh, my whole job is to empower all my employees and get them empowered. And I'm going to get out of the way and I'm just going to empower them. And I learned much later that that was very naive and it was wrong. What I learned is don't empower the employee and empower their skill, right? So earlier we were talking, yes, I'm a snowboarder. Like I'm really good. So I'll just sort of speak. I'm really good. Like most people would look at me going through the trees from top to bottom at Utah. Dang, that's pretty good. Okay. Well then I go try to learn how to kiteboard. I was not very good. Not only was I not good, I had a huge accident, broke my arm, had to have surgery. Okay. Not good. Now I'm trying to learn how to surf. Also, not good. Now we apply that to work. So relevant when sports, we don't think about it in terms of our day-to-day lives at work. 
well, this person is a star performer. Of course, they'll figure out how to run this class. They already are really good at second grade. That Certainly, they can do a special ed class. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, are they really good at this? Certainly, they can get up in front of the school body and do a presentation. Whoa. Or they're really good at this thing. I'm sure they'll be good at writing an academic grant. Or they'll be good at writing a chapter in a book. Oh, they'll be good at a pocket. No, they won't, right? They won't. And so I'm doing them a disservice when I do that. And so I'm sure you've talked about like situational leadership and like going and figuring out the skill and like directing, coaching, supporting, empowering. That stuff's pretty well discovered. That was new to me, right? And that was the thing that I thought I was awesome and empowering people. And I was just wrong. It's awesome. Don't empower the people, empower their skills. And that some of those skills are not transferable. And we mm -hmm. need to learn ourselves and we need to teach and others need to learn. I, that really does remind me also of a concept that we talk about a lot, which is creating a learning culture and empowering people to learn versus just empowering people. Curtis, I think we could go on for another <laughs> hour. We probably could spend another hour just on that. And I've got pages and pages of notes, a ton of books that were referenced here, both explicitly and implicitly. We really appreciate you being on the show. Is there anything else that we didn't ask that you would like to say, that even a request of our listeners to end the podcast today? I'll leave with one final thought. And this, this is something I tell my managers and my leaders. So the, to me, the definition of leader is you use influence to achieve results while maintaining trust, right? And that's the Stephen Covey part for trust. And the, and the first part comes from John Maxwell. So it's a combination of those two. So that's what a leader and, and a manager does. The thing is, is that work is busy. You're busy. I'm busy. We're all busy. There's 50,000 things coming in every day. And it's so easy for me to get lost in what's going on in the crisis of the day that I forget what results I'm actually trying to achieve. What is it I'm actually trying to do as a leader? What's my mission? What's my vision? What am I trying to do? And so my advice to like my junior leaders and stuff is I tell them when something's coming up, look, don't let the crisis of the day dictate your actions as a leader, right? Always go back to, wait, what results do I want to achieve? Okay, there's this crisis in front of me. There's a fire and somebody's in my office and I got to do this thing. Wait, don't let that crisis dictate what I do as a leader. So that's my final thought. And it's a great thought. It helps us to move from urgent work to important work. Yes. And it's a placeholder for us to possibly come back for round two with Curtis Murphy. There you have it, folks. Another great podcast. Don't forget to follow Follow our blog, theschoolhouse302.com for blog posts, podcasts, books to read, and more always on the topic of leadership. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Leading Better and Growing Faster with Joe and TJ and what makes great managers great with Curtis Murphy. Curtis, thanks for being on the show. Hey leaders, before you go, one more announcement. We now have available for you our candid and compassionate feedback masterclass. Really, because of high demand, we are thrilled to offer this. This is a course that we run live and in person all the time and leaders love it. They learn to give feedback with skills that they can use right away, including better praise to lift and celebrate your team. It's now available in a virtual online format that you can take on your own, self-paced, from the comfort of your office or home. Here's what you'll get. There are 11 lessons with a focus on nine candor cancellations that we wrote in our Candid and Compassionate Feedback book. These are mistakes that leaders make that we don't want you to make anymore. We'll teach you models so that your feedback is meaningful and we'll give you tools necessary to build the culture that you've always wanted. Trust us, without these critical skills, you're not capitalizing on your own capacity to lead better 
and grow faster. Go to the site, theschoolhouse302.com, click on shop courses, add this course to your cart and start learning today.